you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Would you join me as we pray as we begin this? Father, we desperately need your help. You've given us a tongue and you've given us speech, but we desperately need your help. And I pray that now my speech in these next minutes and and our speech as we look at these in Q&A afterwards, that our, our thoughts and the meditations of our hearts, we pray they'd be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And in the name and for the glory of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, who begin, Who remembers this moment? <laughs> Anyone remember that? It was March 2017. Uh, the Bible Society, Society commissioned that ad, which went live on our television screens for at least a little while. The Bible Society, Society commissioned that ad, and it got two federal Liberal Party politicians. And it had them discussing respectfully the issue of same-sex marriage, which was leading into that, that postal plebiscite that we had. Um, one of them, the one on the left, is a guy called Tim Wilson. Uh, Tim's, Tim's uh, previously been the head of civil liberties. Uh, he's a Liberal Party member, was until the uh, last election. Uh, Tim was pro-same-sex marriage. Tim is a gay guy and was speaking from that perspective. Uh, the other guy on, on my right... <laughs> Is that whatever? You know, the other guy uh, is a guy called Andrew Hastie, and he's a, a, a federal Liberal Party member who is also a very committed Christian and was speaking from the perspective against the legalization of same-sex marriage. And the idea of the Bible Society was, let's get these two guys who, who really disagree about a really important political issue, let them have a really good discussion together and we'll model respectful debate. And the ad was called Keeping It Light doesn't sound too controversial, but it was. <laughs> it was massively controversial. If you remember, it caused a, a social media furor against Cooper's. Uh, Cooper's beer got the massive backlash. You can see some of the slides here. They were boycotted from pubs. Their, their signs were, were vandalized. Um, and eventually, it led to this, this scene here. You can see where the, the, um, Cooper's is a, a Christian company or Christian-owned company where in the end, uh, the two CEOs of Cooper's, in a really awkward um, interview, said that actually we, we support same-sex marriage, now leave us alone. Now, the message was loud and clear in 2017. Uh, the message was that dissenting views about that particular issue of same-sex marriage and homosexuality were no longer permitted. Uh, those who refused to accept the new orthodoxy would be punished. Today, um, we come to call that kind of thing, anyone know what we call it? We know what we call it, cancel culture. Um, this is a definition of cancel culture for you. Uh, cancel culture refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support for or cancelling public figures and companies after they have done or said something now considered objectionable or offensive. That's cancel culture. And the reason I start with Coopers and this illustration of cancel culture is because I want to maintain for you today that cancel culture is actually one of the greatest threats to 
free speech that we experience in our time. And it's true that sometimes it's legislated. So sometimes when we're talking about free speech, we're talking about legislative safeguards or restrictions on free speech that come through the parliament. But usually that doesn't need to be the case. Um, George Orwell, who wrote 1984, anyone study that like I did at school? Yeah, a few of us. I don't know if they still study 1984. Very perceptive book. But George Orwell um, wrote, and he said, he said this. He warned against this kind of culture once it takes root because he said, unpopular ideas can be silenced and inconvenient facts can be kept dark without the need for any official ban. So we're looking at free speech, thinking about cancel culture, but unless, well, maybe you come and you think, well, that's targeted at Christians. And sometimes Christians have been the targets of cancel culture, but maybe we're not even the biggest targets and we're probably not the most high-profile targets. And it's certainly not just an issue that surrounds same-sex marriage. Uh, for example, uh, here's an image of J.K. Rowling. Anyone know what she wrote? Yes, Harry Potter. Um, J.K. Rowling is not a Christian. She's actually a very strong advocate for same-sex marriage. Um, but she did something in 2017, same year as that ad, which I totally empathize with because this is me all over. She tried to take a screenshot of a Twitter comment about trans issues and she accidentally liked it. And uh, I would so do that. But anyway, she, she says this about that. She said, that single accidental like was deemed evidence of wrong think and a persistent low level of harassment began, she says. And uh, then she goes on to describe, and she, this, is, this is a quote that she, gave, um, she said last year. This is what she said. Listen to what she says. It's very perceptive. Over the last few years, I've watched appalled as many, many women have been subject to campaigns of intimidation, which range from being hounded on social media, the targeting of their employers, all the way up to doxing, and someone will have to tell me what doxing is, all right, um, and direct threats of violence, including rape. None of these women are protected in the way I am. They and their families have been put into a state of fear and distress for no other reason than they've refused to uncritically accept that the socio-political concept of gender identity should replace that of sex. J.K. Rowling was a victim of cancel culture, but I have a favorite victim, if you can have a favorite victim. Is that on PC? It probably is. But my favorite victim of cancel culture is none other than the always grumpy atheist professor, Richard Dawkins. I think we've got a picture of him. I tried to find the grumpiest one I could. I think I did pretty well. Um, if, you, if you've engaged in kind of the intellectual debate around Christianity for the last decades, as I have from time to time, you will know that Richard Dawkins is, uh, he doesn't have a problem with saying what he thinks. Um, let, let me give you an example of what Richard Dawkins says about Christians. Listen to this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He's jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Go on, Richard, say what you really think about Christians and their God. Now, um, Richard, Richard Dawkins has been doing that for a long time. And uh, recently, though, Richard Dawkins got cancelled. And you go, like, wow, what could he say that's more direct than that? Well, um, in, well, in 1996, Richard Dawkins was awarded the Humanist uh, Society of America Award for the greatest humanist of that year in 1996. 
Uh, he had it stripped from him last year, and this was what he said that resulted in that stripping. Typical grumpy, you've got to hear his voice saying this. Is trans woman a woman? Purely semantic. If you define by chromosomes, no. If by self-identification, yes. I call her she out of courtesy. And for that, Richard Dawkins was cancelled. So what is the Christian response to cancel culture and to the right, if you like, of free speech? Um, how should Christians in particular respond? Well, before I look at how we respond, I think we need to actually, out of charity, Christian charity, and also out of curiosity, say, well, what are the arguments for cancel culture? Because there must be arguments for them. What are the arguments for the restriction of free speech? Well, let's um, look at some of those arguments. Uh, definition of free speech, I th we probably know it, but according to the dictionary, free, free speech is the right to express, publish, and receive information, opinions, and other communication without interference from any source. So the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights states about free speech these words, everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. That's pretty, pretty obvious what free speech is, isn't it? Now, those who would promote cancel culture or want to restrict free speech would generally say, yeah, we support that. We absolutely support free speech. But they would say that, hang on, but free speech has never been total, ever. Not in history, not now. For example, they might say, if someone right at this moment, and please don't do this, this is a, this is a hypothetical illustration, someone right now goes, fire! That's just an example, right? No one has the right to do that in a crowded public space because of the obvious harm that is called. It's like if you're at the airport and you decide, I think I'll just shout, bomb. I've got my free speech. It's not going to go well for you. There's always been restrictions on free speech, and those restrictions are intended to prevent societal harm. In the same way, if you're arguing for cancel culture, you would say that to say, like Cooper's did in that ad, or the Bible Society did in that ad, that there is any kind of moral question about homosexuality or same-sex marriage, it's the same thing as yelling fire. You're actually causing harm. Um, LBG uh, people um, suffer all sorts of discrimination and persecution. Many of them um, um, are struggling with, with kind of all sorts of... Um, issues that can sometimes lead to suicide, and so for Coopers to just shout out, as they did in that ad, is harmful and hurtful, that they don't have the right under free speech to do that. Um, same is true of J.K. Rowling or um, good old Dawkins. You know, like, these guys, yeah, they, they can say what they say, but it's hurtful, and it's harmful to people who are transgender. It may even lead to the already astronomically high suicide rate amongst these people to actually go higher. And here proponents of cancel culture argue is the main key. Free speech is often used as a camouflage or as a cloak for bigotry and for hatred and for discrimination. And they'll say what's required in a modern democracy is not just a right to be protected from harm caused by violent speech, which we'd all recognize, but to be also to be protected from the harm caused by hurtful 
speech. It's not just violent speech, hurtful speech. And this is the, um, if you've, I feel like I'm always talking about this, I don't want to be, but if you've, if you've followed Victorian politics and you've looked at the suppression bill, which came into force a few months ago here in Victoria, that's the explicit reasons given by the Victorian government for the introduction of their bill. Um, if, you, if you're not aware what this bill does, it's, it's quite broad-ranging in a number of areas, but one of the areas is that it is now a crime under Victorian law for a pastor such as myself um, to pray for anyone in his or her congregation who is struggling with same-sex attraction or, or gender dysphoria in a way that suggests that that same-sex attraction or that, that gender, or the gender dysphoric condition is in any way harmful. So I don't know if I said that clearly. So, so for me to pray, Lord, please heal this person or please take away this desire that they're experiencing for a member of the opposite sex um, would be conceived under this law as, as uh, hurtful and dangerous and it's now a criminal act that can result in jail time and, and large fines. And uh, the Victorian government acknowledged in the process, I, I was one of the ones that submitted submissions to that law, and they said, look, we acknowledge that we're restricting free speech, and we acknowledge that we're impacting on the freedom of religion, but the end result of those things is worth those restrictions, because it's protecting people from harm. So, so those, I've tried to be fair and open in, in presenting those arguments for cancel culture, um, but before I look at what the Christian response to them should be, or could be, as we, those of us who are Christians, wrestle with the particular fact that we are believers in God and we're believers in the Lord Jesus. Before we look at that, I, I just want to highlight there's a couple of, three actually obvious, I think, problems with what, what has become the debate around free speech, which are not particularly Christian, right? I think these, these apply to anybody, and I think that they're problems with this cancel culture. So let, let me give you three of them. Firstly, free speech um, in some ways, it's not the most controversial of the issues we're looking at in this series, but it's maybe the most important. Uh, let me say why. Because it can arguably be the most important of these issues because it impacts all of the rest. So what do I mean by that? I mean, on free speech hinges our ability to discuss and debate every other political issue. So it's not just free speech itself as a as sort of a dis detached concept, Free speech influences our ability to discuss everything else. So, for example, in our parliament, um, sometimes we think that democracy functions, you're really just in parliament to pass your laws. But actually, parliament, when democracy is working at its best, is a place of rigorous debate, where people from different perspectives present different viewpoints, feeding into the legislation and the decisions of a society. And the point is that you get a robust decision-making process. If you haven't got free speech and the ability to speak freely, you don't end up with decisions that are actually as robust or the best for everybody involved. So, for example, um, I recently had to uh, buy a car for Ethan, who's now 18, my oldest son. We had to help him get a car. Now, would you, if you were buying a car or any other major purchase, would you look at the internet and go, I'm going to filter out all the negative reviews for this car? I'm not going to look at the positive reviews because I want to feel good about this car. And so you look at all the positive reviews, don't look at the negative ones, you buy the car, you feel good about it, but are you going to be happy with that decision when you're a few thousand kilometers down the road? Maybe not. M maybe by only looking at one side of, uh, of, of the reviews, you actually missed something which may have annoyed you at the time because you want to buy the car, 
that would have been actually helpful for you. So there's a similarity here with issues today. Like, let's look at transgender. Uh, Dave Chiswell is going to be doing that um, later on down the series, so I'm not going to get a dive in too deep. But transgender is a very difficult, painful issue for many people, practically, pastorally. But politically um, and medically, up until very recently, only five or ten years ago, if you were, if you were say, um, a woman who felt that, that you were a, um, you're biologically a woman, but you felt that you're actually a man, you were a, a man trapped in a woman's body, you, you would go to the psychiatric specialists and uh, the doctors and the counsellors, and they would initially try to say, hang on, let's try and square who you think you are with your biological sex, which is female. Let's try and square those together. Today, uh, and under the suppression law in Victoria, this is, now, this is now potentially criminal action, today medical practitioners, counsellors, pastors are running into significant legal trouble for recommending any option or decision that it does not explicitly endorse someone's chosen gender decision. And the reason for that in the suppression bill is because you don't want to harm a teenage girl who, who's in a process of transitioning. It's immensely troubling for her at that stage, and it is. So you don't want to suggest in any way that what she is wanting to do is wrong, because you might cause harm. But the problem with this, and it's a massive problem, is, and I'll actually let someone who has gone through this process speak rather than me describe it. Her name is Carrie. Um, you can find her story online if you like. It's on YouTube. It's in the public domain. She's not a Christian. Uh, Carrie is, was a 17-year-old, and she wanted to transition from female to male. And uh, she'd wanted to do that since she was about 14. When she was 17, she transitioned. Uh, she says this, I want to ask you, how many other medical conditions are there when you can walk into the doctor's office, tell them that you have a certain condition which has no objective test, which can be caused by trauma or mental health issues or societal factors, and then receive life-altering medications on your say-so? Carrie says. Then she says this. This is the real outcome of my transition. I'm a real, live, 22-year-old woman with a scarred chest and a broken voice and a five o'clock shadow because I couldn't face the idea of growing up to be a woman. That's my reality. What about you, Bet? That is sad. That is terrible. Was it really best for Carrie that she was only allowed to hear one side of a very complex and difficult issue? Was that really, was cancel culture and restriction of free speech really preventing her from harm? First problem, second problem. This is a political problem, but it's real. Cancel culture and the restriction of free speech gives to the state, gives to the government the role of nanny. All right? Everybody likes a nanny, at least when you're a kid. Stops the kids killing each other. You know, um, stops them stealing each other's toys. And, and uh, then, you know, we, we are very comfortable with the state stopping us killing each other and protecting our right to, like, to hold property. That's good. It's, it's a role of the state. But... The state also now is saying that it knows best about how to stop its citizens harming one another or hurting one another through speech. So that's, again, the suppression bill. The, the state is, is so right and sure that it knows best how to stop its citizens hurting each other with words 
um, that, for example, the, um, the Victorian Equal Opportunity Commissioner recently said, she said these words, without even blinking an eye, she said, religious leaders in Victoria must be re-educated on the harm caused to gay people by saying that their lifestyle is sinful. She, she can say that without blinking an eye because the state is so sure that it's right in, in what causes harm within its citizens that it can say, well, look, even though we're restricting free speech, we're doing that for your good. And one day, you will look back and say and be thankful that we as the state did the right thing. Even though right now you might not agree with this, the state is your nanny and nanny knows best. Now, this is totalitarianism through and through. Uh, if you've studied um, political history, as I have for my undergraduate and postgraduate degree, you will know that this is how totalitarianism always starts. It's how communism started. Communism began by saying, a lot of people are not going to accept communism, but we need to institute it by force, by, by violence, because once we've done it, the greater good that's achieved by communism will show, in history will say, we were right in even sending people to the gulag. Now, you rightly say to me, we're not yet there in Victoria. We're not there, and we're not. We're hopefully, God willing, a long way from that. But my point is that when you begin to restrict free speech because you think that you know what is best as a government, you are on the road to totalitarianism. You may be at the first stop on the train line, but you're on the train line. You're heading that direction. Restricting free speech is actually reducing the very best thing that we have for protecting life and liberty in a democracy. And when you restrict it, there are unintended consequences down the line. Thirdly, cancel culture destroys what it claims to promote. Diversity. Uh, people in democracy hold different views because we're different people, right? We're genuinely different. We, we express diversity. We come from different backgrounds. We have different ways of thinking about the world. We have different opinions about everything. And that's the reality of genuine diversity. It's a good thing. But if we restrict free speech and we cancel the ability to genuinely hold free opinions because they might harm or, or they might hurt somebody else's feelings or cause offense, we actually end up with a sham diversity. It's diversity in name only. It's really only interested in the total acceptance of one set of views at the exclusion of all the others. As uh, one writer says, cancel culture's call for diversity is hollow given it comes from an implacable desire for uniformity. You understand what I mean? It's, it claims to be restricting free speech in the name of diversity, but what, what's it, what it's actually doing is saying, we want everybody to agree on these things and to be the same. It's not genuine diversity. And if you, I think there's a cartoon that you might say, someone sent me a cartoon, which I think is actually, is actually true. But if you think about how hollow that claim is, you've only got to think about the Manly Seven. Um, I don't know if you've followed that in the news, those uh, rugby league players who said, we're not going to wear a gay pride jersey because that, we don't believe in, in that, what the jersey is promoting. And cancel culture's been like, how dare they? How dare they? That's discriminatory. That's evil. That's bigotry. That's hate. But you've only got to flip it and go, all right, let's say that, um, I don't know, the, uh, the uh, Sydney on a Hill Geelong football club, which is now AFL club, which has now joined the AFL, competing against Geelong. Uh, imagine they decide, you know what? Everybody is going to have to wear a shirt that says, Jesus is Lord, with a couple of Bible verses. Like, I mean, what would cancel re culture's response be to that? See, it's, it's just not on a level playing field. It says one view is acceptable, the other's not. It undermines diversity. It doesn't promote it. 
th- those are not Christian arguments at all. Because um, I think it's an issue, it, it, Christians are part of society. This is an issue that impacts just beyond us. But Christians are unique in the, in the sense that we are radically different from society because, because our worldview is shaped by a belief in a loving God who gives to his people the, the rules, the commands, the guidelines for human flourishing. So as a Christian, if you take your faith seriously, I hope you do, your question will be, okay, that's interesting political arguments you've made, Andrew, but what does the Bible say? As a Christian, how should I respond to this issue of free speech? I'm glad you asked it. Let, let's look. Firstly, what does the Bible say about free speech? Genesis 1, verse 3. First book of the Bible, third verse says, And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Uh, God brought creation into being through speech. Uh, Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God speaks to create man and woman, humankind. And then he gives to them free speech. He gives to them speech. So Genesis 2.19, it says, now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And he brought them to the man, it's before the woman is created, to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, Every living creature, that was its name. Uh, speech is godlike. It's given to us by God. It's a free and beautiful gift for those who are created in the image of God. But we are not in that place now, are we? Uh, we live on the other side. That was the, the perfect creation. We now live in the fall. And it's very interesting that the fall, where, where, God, where, where people and God are, are separated by human sin... Human sin is tied up right at the beginning with speech. Listen to this. Genesis 3.1, And the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did he really say that, Eve? No. God didn't say that. Uh, Speech is at the center of that original rebellion when Eve rebels and then her speech to Adam and Adam's nasty speech to her. and The the whole mess that begins um, with the fall is centered on speech. But we don't live, yes, we live in the fall, but we live as Christians on the other side of the fall because we live in the redeemed creation. Not fully redeemed, but God is not content to let his precious human creation and his world be in this situation of, of, um, of sin and, and hopelessness and alienation from him. He makes a way to deal with it. And that we, in John chapter 1, this one in the, in, the, in the New Testament, it says this, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who was the Word? Jesus Christ was the Word. And then it says in, in John chapter 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God sends His living Word into the world. And in Matthew four twenty three, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Words are part of God's redeeming plan for this world and for His people. In Acts chapter 5, 20, an angel comes to the apostles and says, Now go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
So speech is something that is, is good in the beginning. It's fallen as humans corrupted. It's redeemed by God and used as part of his saving plan. So the Bible has a massive en- emphasis on speech. Now, practically, this is where it gets nuts and bolts. How do we handle that, particularly as Christians, in regard to this debate about free speech and cancel culture? Right? Four things, then we're done. First, I believe that the biblical foundation that I've just outlined from scripture, scripture means that Christians should be advocates of free speech for everybody. We should, we should be advocates of genuinely free speech, even when that speech can be come across as offensive or it hurts people's feelings, including ours. Uh, David Mitchell is a, a theologian. He, he says this, God exemplifies free speech despite the risk of offense. The entire Bible is his message to a rebellious humanity, which finds its claims deeply offensive. That's true, isn't it? God created humans in his image and gave us unique among earthly creatures, the godlike capabilities of rational thought and speech and the freedom to employ them. Honoring the image of God in fellow humans must include honoring those capabilities and this corresponding freedom. Christians should be advocates for free speech. Um, We've got nothing to fear in advocating for free speech. Uh, The author and historian John Dixon uh, once said this. He said, imagine you went into a a famous art gallery and you walked into the art gallery and all of the, the works are in darkness except for one work which has got the spotlight on it and the big sign, this is the greatest work in all of history. He he said, what would you think if you walked into that gallery and you saw that? He said, you'd rightly be suspicious. And you're like, if that work is really the greatest work in all of history, how come it's in the spotlight and everything else is in darkness? Put the spotlights on all of them, if it's that good. If it's that good, it will stand on its own legs, whether or not you put the spotlight on it or whether you try to stop others having the spotlight on them. And so it is with the Lord Jesus. He is good enough to stand on his own two feet. We don't, as Christians, have to try and restrict other people from from promoting their faith through free speech or their atheism through through free speech. Go for it. You know, our God and the Lord Jesus Christ is beautiful. You don't need to falsely shine a light on him to make that clear. So Christians should be advocates of free speech for everyone because we've got nothing to fear. Free speech is, is a good thing. Even when people will blaspheme uh, our God and our Lord, and, and hurt us, that's, that's between them and God. As Christians, we know that God can defend himself and stand on his own two feet. Secondly, and this is a very important qualification, free speech is good, yes. Absolute freedom of speech cannot be a moral right for Christians. Why? Because there can never be a moral right to do wrong. You understand what I'm saying? It cannot be an absolute right because there's no moral right for you and I, if we're Christians, to sin, to do the wrong thing. This is because the tongue, as James Wright in our reading before, is a restless evil, your mouth and mine, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James says, our tongue is capable of evil, absolute um, free speech, even if it's a legal and political right, can never be a moral right for Christians because we never get the right to do wrong. So gossip, slander, seducing others to sin, communicating heresy among the people of God, these are all moral wrongs in Scripture. They're they're sins. 
the sins against God and against his people. So the, the Bible commands us about speech. It says, if you've got someone in your church who just cannot shut up with their mouth and has always been divisive and you've warned them and you've spoken to them enough times, you need to expel them. Free speech is, is not free in, if it's causing harm in, in the community of God. Um, what else? It commands leaders in the church of God that, that if there is um, heresy that is saying wrong things about God, uh, amongst people in the church, especially false teachers, they need to be silenced. They say, I got my right to free speech. No, you don't have a right to do a moral wrong. And this is why it can seem odd. So you're saying, Andrew, you're saying that Richard Dawkins could say whatever he wants about God and you'd support his right? Absolutely. But you're saying that a leader in the church could say the same things as Richard Dawkins and you would try to silence him? Absolutely. And the reason is, is that we don't have any say over those who are outside the church. But in the church, the Bible says that free speech needs to be good speech. And if it's not good speech, if it's causing evil or sin, it needs to be dealt with. It's not hypocritical. It's just a recognition of the fact that, that we, we're not trying to control the state, but we do need to stand uh, for what is right and true and godly and righteous in the church. Um, big preacher of free speech for Christians. This is probably the takeaway point from this morning. Speech is free, absolutely, it's a God-given gift that you and I will be held accountable for every word we say. Does that scare you? Think about social media, about those posts when you're feeling upset. Think about the fights you have with your spouse, uh, maybe when you've, you've got a sore foot. Um, think of those things. We're going to be held to account, every single one. Jesus said this, Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment... People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. I don't know about you, but the Lord Jesus has a particular way with his speech, doesn't he? A particular way of, of shining deep in our hearts. Free speech is important, but godly speech is more important. Thirdly, those of us who are Christians need to think about where we live. So I, I'm, there's a commentator, a guy called Steve McAlpine. He's um, published a couple of good books recently. Very sharp guy. He, he says that in the Bible, there are two different cities. Uh, one of the cities is, is Athens. And if you read through the book of Acts, you'll know that when Paul comes to Athens, he goes um, to the Areopagus or Mars Hill, and, um, and he enters this debate. It says, the Athenians just want to hear about new stuff. And like, you're a Christian, you're right? You, you've got a new God. Tell us. We'd love to hear. And there's a debate and an interaction. And, and in the end, a lot of them go, oh, it's rubbish. But they, they have this debate. Um, that's Athens in the New Testament. And um, Steve McAlpine argues that for most of our lifetimes, we've lived in Athens. And so I, I think it's very true for me. So I, I did an undergraduate degree at Uni of New South Wales and a postgraduate degree at Oxford um, 20, 30 years ago now. But when I was doing those degrees... I was openly a Christian, and um, in my classes, people would say, so why are you a Christian? And I'd say, for these reasons, and they go like, I reckon that's rubbish. I reckon blah, 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 blah is true. And, oh, no, I think, I think you're wrong. And, then, and we'd sometimes have a debate, sometimes got a little bit heated, and then yeah, we go, all right, let's go for a Cooper's. No, but you can imagine, you know, that's, we didn't quite say that. Um, but it was like, you've got your opinions, I think you're a nutcase, but you, you've got your right to hold your opinions, good on you, good. And people would actually say to me when I became, went into religious full-time mission, like, good on you. You know, you're following your heart, and even though we think it's rubbish, good on you. You know, uh, that was Athens, right? Those of you who are older, 
you, Athens was your home city. But as Steve McAlpine says, Athens is gone. Today, you and I, we don't live in Athens. We actually live in the Old Testament city and the New Testament city, which was referred to, of Babylon. Babylon is now our home. You say, what's Babylon like? Well, in the book of Daniel, you'll know what Babylon's like. Nebuchadnezzar makes this immense gold statue. And then he gets everyone before the statue. He says, all right, you've got a choice. This is your choice. Worship the statue or burn alive. You choose. Free choice, guys. That's Babylon. Babylon is not interested in your opinions and the reasons for it. It's interested in your conformity. Uh, To quote Steve McAlpine, he wrote this in 2017 after the Cooper's ad. Uh, he, He called it the end of free speech in Australia. This is what he said. What we have learned over the past few years, and it is only a few years, is that secularism has bottomed out. And lo and behold, it has bottomed out on the issue of sex. I think I'm going to start calling it secularism. And to that end, secularism is not the friend that it seemed to be, and which we, as a minority in Australia at least, assumed it would always be, allowing us to play marbles in the corner of the schoolyard. It's going to start playing rough throwing its weight around and stealing lunch money. Put simply, secularism is going to play the playground bully, and especially in areas of sex. He wrote that in 2017. Uh, 2022, uh, that's meant to be 2017, not 2007. Uh, He wrote it in 2017, and he's right. And in the years since then, it has changed. Secularism is playing more and more of the bully all Every year, it's Babylon, and the result for, for free speech is that free speech is not free any longer, as it was in Athens. Free speech is costly. It will cost you. It will cost you something. And in one sense, it's not really surprising that this is the case. Because if we, as, if we do what we've done as a culture and we remove God, we say, God, you don't belong here anymore, You don't belong in the political space. You don't belong in our society anymore. We're a secular society. You must replace God with something else. There's never a vacuum. It's always filled. And secularism replaces God with with human freedoms, with human determination, with human identity. And it's increasingly finding that in, in sexual identity and gender. And if you're going to challenge that utopian process, you're going to find that free speech is not free. It's costly. But fourthly and finally, we need to speak freely for truth if we're Christians. It may not be that we have a right, a legal or civil right to free speech in the future, as we still do, nominally now at least. But free speech is actually the best defense we have against the bullying of cancel culture. Um, I agree with J.K. Rowling. I'm quoting her, not C.S. Lewis in this sermon. Um, J.K. Rowling says that... um, To say that just because, I'm paraphrasing you, to say just because you disagree with someone about an important issue means that you are bigoted or hateful is, she says, morally and intellectually insipid. I agree with her. Um, Saying you disagree with someone as a Christian is not hate. It's not bigotry. Uh, Jesus, of course, is the one, if we're a Christian, we look to. Jesus didn't pull his punches. And when he disagreed with people, he really disagreed. You brood of vipers! 
That's the words of, of Jesus, the most loving person that has ever lived. And indeed, disagreement, Christian disagreement, speaking freely, should be motivated by love. And not, not by, I've got my right to say whatever I want to say, and you, you it, it's motivated by love. We want to speak the truth because the truth sets people free. The devil's the, the, the liar, the father of lies. He lied from the beginning. We're not like the devil. We speak truth, and we speak it in love. Now, here's a man who's recently been at the center of this, Israel Folau. I've got a picture of him there. I don't, many of you will have, have known um, what he did. He, he posted a paraphrase from the book of Romans on Twitter, I think it was, and it caused a furor uh, in the media. If you haven't, you can look it up, you'll see it. Now, I'm going to say up front, I don't agree with the approach that Israel Folau took. Right? You can chat with me afterwards. Um, posting something as he did without context comes across, especially if you are someone who is same-sex attracted or, or homosexual, or any of that acronym, it does come across as offensive. It, it feels like it's He's taking a shot. I, I, don't, I don't think it was the wisest thing for him to do in the way that he did it. But I do think that in wanting to speak the truth, he had the right to do that. And as I said, I, I, would, have, I would have done it differently than he did, but he, and I hope he was doing it out of love, he said he was, um, publicly, but he, had the, he has the right to speak that, and if he's speaking in love, it is actually the most loving thing he can do. And, and you know why? Because if you really believe the gospel, and if you're a Christian, you do, right? If you really believe the gospel, that, that when the Lord Jesus comes into the world, and he, and he says, the light has come into the darkness, and the darkness doesn't understand it, but the light is speaking the truth, and Jesus is saying, come to me, all you are weak and heavy laden, and you'll find rest. Jesus is claiming to be life and to the full. Jesus comes into the world and he speaks in a way that often caused offense. It caused people to crucify him, right? Not just cancel him, crucify him. And he did it out of love. And you know what? I think the point that I want to see here for us speaking truth is that sometimes you speaking the truth, even if you're canceled for it, may well be the most loving thing that you can ever, ever do. I mean, Israel Folau quoted that verse that says, a whole lot of people who do all of these things, including homosexuality, will ultimately spend eternity apart from God in hell. So offensive. Yeah, he could have packaged it better, but that's what the Bible says, right? Liars and greedy and idolaters and homosexuals and fornicators, and you, you name that list. People who live unrighteously without the salvation of Jesus Christ are going to hell, Right? That's what you believe if you're a Christian because it's what the Bible teaches. Christians have always believed that. Is that offensive? Yeah. Paul says it's like the stench of death if you're perishing. How dare you say that about me? We'll crucify you for saying that. But Christians speaking the truth, even in a culture that wants to cancel them and shut them down, that is the most loving thing you can do. Speaking the truth to someone who's in desperate need of salvation, even if they don't want to hear it, and even if they reject you for it, is the most loving thing that you can do. You see, Jesus is our God. It's not politics. It's not being popular. It's not being right. It's not our democratic rights and, and privileges and our, and our urging for free speech. And if you think about the early Christians, right, the apostles, they, the government came to them and said, stop it. We've warned you. 
now it's getting serious. Stop talking about Jesus or there will be consequences. And the apostles responded, we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. They went, no, we're going to speak about Jesus whether you, you shut us up, no matter what you say. We're going to keep speaking about Jesus. And the truth for those early Christians and the apostles is that speech wasn't free. They weren't arguing for the, the right to free speech. They felt they had an obligation to speak the truth. And it was an obligation that cost them massively. You, you, if you read church history, all of them suffered dreadfully. Most of them, all but one, were murdered. And it's true of the, the early Christians. Free speech was not a right, it was an obligation. It's true for most Christians in the world today, numerically. Millions and millions of Christians living in a world where, in their countries where there is no right to free speech, but there's an obligation to speak the truth. The free speech we have enjoyed in the West is a good thing. And I would argue that it's a fruit from the Christian tree. But as Christianity in the West at least is on the retreat, that fruit is going to get rarer and it's going to become more and more costly. It's not a call for pessimism though. I want to close with a quote from the historian, a guy called O'Donovan. And he's talking about the, the boldness of the early church as it spoke into its world of the Roman Empire, which was trying to destroy their right to speak the truth by force. This is what he said. But confronted with the community empowered by God's speech, force could extinguish speech only at the cost of investing it with the dignity of martyrdom. It proved impossible in the event for Roman society to refuse an answer to the word that was addressed to it with this seriousness. That's a very perceptive statement. Force could extinguish free speech in the end only by investing it with the dignity of martyrdom. The Roman world could not say no or ignore free speech with that objective in mind, with love. So you and I have got a right to free speech, but we've got a greater obligation to speak the truth about Jesus, the living word, the first and the last word, whatever price that we might pay. It's not about a right to free speech, it's about an obligation to speak the truth about Jesus. As Paul said, Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Until we stand on that final day, each one of us have our words assessed before the Alpha and the Omega, the first word and the last word, Jesus Christ. Heavy obligation, isn't it? I'm going to pray for us briefly. Then we're going to pause and we can, uh, we can chat with one another. Say good day to someone maybe you don't know. But if you haven't yet, the number's on the screen. If you haven't yet put that in, text that question in and we'll, I'll do my absolute best in about five minutes or so to, to take some of those questions. But let's pray. Father, we pray um, that you would help us to think rightly about free speech and this issue in our society. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us the strength to not be fighting for rights as much as obeying the obligation that you lay on us to go into all the world speaking the good news and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, 
you said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is what we pray in confidence and thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.